0: Welcome to Jazz Office Hours. I'm your host, Will Chernoff, here with Corey Weeds. Corey, it is episode one of our new podcast today. How are you feeling?
1: I'm good. I'm excited. Episode one. Let's hope it's episode one of many.
0: Indeed. This will be the first monthly episode of the show, but here we are for our first recording session. So if you have any feedback about how this goes after you listen, you can send it to the same place that you've been sending your questions, which is an email address that I monitor as the host and the producer, hello at jazzofficehours.com. Corey is very fastidious. He says he never wants to know what the questions are before we start recording. So Corey, you don't know what I'm about to ask or bring up, is that true? It is true. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. So the first one I've got queued up, if we wanted to, I'm sure we could do an entire episode just on this. But I have brought in a couple more questions behind it around the same theme. But maybe we'll have to first look at this particular question and break it down a little bit. I think it's a wonderful place to start, though, especially for episode one. So here it is. Here's the first question. Corey, can you and Will do an episode where you talk about the ins and outs of releasing an album from step one to out in the world? Wow. (laughs) I know. It's like a big one. big question.
1: Um, How do we break it down? Yeah, well, that's uh, it's a it's a great question, and it's something that I deal with pretty much every day of my life. And yep. as you can well imagine, with the speed at which the music industry seems to change, you have to keep up and keep asking yourself questions, you know, around your release. So. I think what I would say, this is one of those questions where I would have probably benefited from some time to think about it, you know, <laughs> to, to, so I could put it succinctly. There's two things, I think. First of all, you have to figure out what your goals are and what your expectations are. Why are you releasing a record? Well, What's the purpose of you releasing a record? And that sounds like a silly thing to say because like, oh, I want to release my music to the world. Isn't it obvious? But that, that's not really what I mean. Is it something, for example, that you are, you have an expectation that you're going to financially, like this is a financial risk for you, therefore, uh, you are looking at it as a, as an investment and you are expecting a return on your investment. Are you a new artist? That's like, I'm sort of looking at like, yes, recouping my investment would be ideal, but I'm looking at this as the, as my entry point into the industry to introduce myself to people. Uh, and so I'm less concerned about, you know, the financial or the monetary reward or payback. So I think those are some things that need to go into your thought process when you're putting out a record. I think the second thing is knowing your audience. You know, a lot of people that come and hear me play because I'm playing straight ahead music, logic says that a l- older demographic means more of a CD buying demographic. Now, it's not to say that I don't have young listeners, that's not what I mean, but You don't want to pigeonhole yourself or you don't want to think narrowly about that, but I think you have to be realistic about it. And there are many things that come in to why you need to ask yourself these questions. Are you going to do press and publicity? We could do a whole episode on that. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, If you are going to do press and publicity, who are you going to use? That means you're going to have to have X amount of CDs pressed. Are you going to do radio? If you are going to do radio radio stations in the States and in Canada still require physical copies, you know, in order to get your, your music played. So these are all decisions that you need to be making sort of simultaneously while, you know, producing your record. Yeah. So those are some of the immediate business decisions that you should start thinking about right away. Yeah. I think it goes without saying that your biggest concern should be Practicing, rehearsing, making sure that you are going to put out the best product possible. Start talking to people about studios. Start talking to people about engineers. Who are the engineers in your area? Who are the people that you've heard? What studios have you heard about? Start start doing some research around that. Do you want to have a producer? And do you value a producer? And if you don't know what a producer does, find out. You know, And I can talk a little bit about that. And I personally really like having a producer and I like being in the producer chair because the, the, the job of the musician is to focus solely on making the music. And I happen to be one of the lucky people who can do a lot of things at the same time. A, a lot of people have that ability but don't want to utilize it. They want to be concentrating on making music and have somebody else making all the other decisions. Now, that doesn't mean musical decisions all the time. It means... Did you get the piano tune? Please pay the, I'll give you the checks, but please make sure the engineer has my credit card number. Please make sure the piano gets tuned. Please make sure you order lunch. Please make sure you do a schedule. Please make sure you come in and tell me I'm out of tune. Please come in and tell me that tune's too long. Please come in and tell me that everything sounds great. Let's move on. You know, I had Steve Caldestad, who's a good friend of mine and a great tenor player, and I wanted him to sort of produce my record with Harold Mayburn. And it was invaluable to me because he came in. We had been on the road for two and a half, three weeks. We went into the studio. We had eight hours in the studio booked, and we bashed that record out in about two and a half hours. And I, we would play a tune, and Steve would come in and say, Do next tune. I'm like, Really? We shouldn't do another take? He's like, I mean, You sound great. But keep going. Oh. And so having those kinds of, of people in the studio who are familiar with your playing and familiar with you personally. Can be very helpful, but again, it's an expense. Steve didn't do it for. Well, actually, I think Steve did do it for free. But we're, good, we're you know, we're good friends. But a producer's not going to be free. So then you get into the production of the record and, and and the making of the record, and and that's actually probably. I mean, I don't want to say it's the easiest thing about it, but it actually probably is. Like actually, recording a record is the easy part. Mm. The fun part. It's the easy part. You go and you make your record, then you have the record, then you're making decisions, which you probably already made at this point on who's going to mix the record, who's going to master the record. How long are the tunes going to be? How many tunes are going to be on there? Did you have a photographer there? Did you have a videographer there? Do you have in mind what singles, if you're going to release singles, you know, my expertise lies in jazz recordings and, and really nothing else. Um, but this phenomenon now jazz musicians releasing singles. It's not so common in the jazz world and releasing singles in the jazz world now is very streaming focused. The good part about it is, is that extends the interest level of your record. So instead of, Hey, we're dropping a record on July 15th, people are start to talk about it on July 7th or July 1st. Whereas if you've released three or four singles, they've seen a video, they've heard some of the music start to get excited. Oh, another single's coming up. Then they're talking about it again. Oh, another single comes. Oh, now the full length the record comes up. So you get a longer period. Yeah. The flip side of that longer period is you have to have your ducks in a row sooner than if you're just releasing a record into the world. I remember, I mean, even not even that long ago, like even a couple years ago, if I was going to put out a record, I had to have everything ready two and a half months before the, I wanted the record to come out. I mean, that was easy. Yeah. And- you know, when we were talking off air about like, how's, how, how are you? I'm like, oh I'm, I'm crazy busy. It's all that stuff. It's, we got this single comment and that single comment. We got to have this ready and we got to have the cover for that. Oh yeah. You know, so again, these are all strategic things to start to think about. When is your release timeline? You know, are you active on social media? Do you want to become active on social media? Do you not care about social media? Like all of those things are, are things that need to be happening. And once you have those things figured out, I think then you can come up with a step-by-step and then it becomes quite easy. I mean, when you have a record label like like mine and people helping, you know, I, we have a sort of a system that we're constantly revamping and, and, and changing to try to make these things a little bit more streamlined, you know, and then produce a record, you get all the graphics done, you get it out, like what's your distributor? Have you called Corey? Is he interested in helping? Have you... You know, what are the online, like, um, distro kid and CD Baby and Bandcamp. And, you know, have you done your research around that? Are you going to tour? You know, how, how is that all, how's that stuff all going to work? So it's, you know, the short answer is that it's pretty overwhelming, but <laughs> I, I, I think, yeah. I think you need to a lot, like when somebody comes to me and it happens a lot, that's the first thing I say, what are you hoping to accomplish? And it's amazing. Well, some people say, well, I've got $10,000 that I'm willing to put into this record. Okay. Well, that changes the conversation a little bit. Or I have, look, I got a grant. I didn't have a grant, but I've been saving up for this. I don't care about, it's not about making money. And you know, another example I'll give you is I put out a record with Joey DeFrancesco called The Many Deeds of Corey Weeds that cost me a lot of money. If you did the math around what I would need to sell to pay that record off, it wouldn't have made any sense. I mean, any investor would have gone like, what are you talking about? It's not even possible based on how many you're printing. But it wasn't about that for me. It was about, I got a chance to play three gigs with Joey DeFrancesco at my own club. I got to make a record. I put that record out on vinyl. Uh, I got asked to do a gig with Joey in Pittsburgh for the CD release. Yeah. And then Joey came back to Vancouver to play with me for three three nights when I closed the club. Oh yeah. If you you add up all of those things with record sales and gig opportunities, I probably still didn't recoup, but it it wasn't about recouping. It was about what did that do for my career? And I think musicians sometimes get stuck in, we all need to make a living. We all need to make money. We all need to pay rent and, and, and eat. It can't always be about in and out in regards to one project. So yeah, again, I have a big label and I promote stuff and I have a job at Frankie's, but for me, it's always about, am I bringing in more than I'm paying out from all my, from all my musical sources? And the answer is so far, yes. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter. I don't go well, that record didn't do very well. So maybe I need to change next time. Um, it's like, no, I have the, the, these things have created all of these things. And I, I have done some records that I thought were going to be really successful that just quite frankly, weren't. And
0: that's okay. I don't know
1: why. And it's okay. You just sort of keep going. So that's a big question, but I think really set your goals and what your expectations are, and then start asking questions around how to achieve those goals.
0: Yeah. You have how many albums on seller now? It's in the low hundreds, right? It's like 200 albums, 300 uh, albums. Yeah, I
1: think it's three. Yeah, low hundreds. Right, right. I thought I thought you were saying like low hundreds, like 125. I'm like, no, no, no.
0: It's Yeah, it's, it's oh, like, yeah. Th- I think it's around 300. Yeah, nice. So I've only made two. <laughs> I've only made two albums in my life. Uh, one with my band, which has probably sold in the low thousands of copies because we toured it. And one that I made myself. So I have only one album under my own name that I released in 2020, and then I made an album with my band in 2018. And I love that you talked about, well, what are your expectations or what are your motivations, really? Because I have those motivations fresh in my mind on those two projects. And they're probably ones that you might relate to, say, if you're graduating from music university and you're trying to figure out how to step out into the world or you're trying to fulfill some concept that you've had in your mind while you've been studying or practicing so yeah my band was not a jazz band it was a folk rock band with singer songwriter and violin and when we made our first album we had that kind of thing where we had a certain amount of money and we had certain goals we were like well how much can we all afford to invest into this album you know between us for maybe 15 to 20 grand we're gonna do a little kickstarter we're gonna invest what we've got into making this album and then we are going to get it out in time to submit for folk festivals and we're going to play the folk festivals next summer. And by gosh, we did that. We had no publicity. We didn't hire a publicist. We did no radio other than submitting it to the radio people we already knew from the past five or ten years. But that was enough. That made something happen. So just because our expectations weren't super firmed up but we had this general goal of we're coming in with some resources that we want to put to work and our general goal is that we want to be able to take this onto the main stage of a folk festival. We did that. So you could yeah. do that too. You could say, well, I want to give it a go at playing at the Vancouver Jazz Fest I've grown up in Vancouver or the Montreal Jazz Fest or the Winnipeg Jazz Fest or whatever your city's festival is. If you already know some of those people, you know, that might be a reasonable enough goal to keep you on track. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I will say, and I, I say this carefully because I was lucky as a youngster, nobody handed me anything, but I, you know, I had the support of my parents and, and so that was helpful, of course. But you get out what you put in, yeah. in every aspect, but sometimes that means financially and that's just the way it is. If you want to do something, you know, you can get grants, but it took me a long time to start getting grants Personally, I put my money where my mouth is. I went and borrowed a bunch of money from the bank and spent it frivolously, and I ended up doing okay. But, (laughs) you know, I realized very young that I was going to have to put something into, you know, like that Ross Taggart record and that Bruno Mm -hmm. Hubert record, the first two on the label. I mean, I borrowed $10,000 from the bank. I, I don't know why they gave it to me, but they did. And that's so, you know, that wasn't somebody handing me money saying, here, we think you're going to do really well. We're happy to give you money or a grant. So, I think you should also prepare yourself for that. I mean, you know, and nowadays you have crowdfunding, which I have I have mixed feelings about, but I have used it to great success and there are grants, but it's often and I you know, I see people who I know have the money or have some resources that don't want to use their own resources, and that's always confused me. If you want to further your career, but you want to do it with somebody else's money. And I brought this up one time at a business of music clinic and somebody said, well, that's what you did. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to get offended by that because I know what you're referring to is yes, I have factor. And yes, I had just gotten a Canada council grant. And yes, I had an investor at the seller, several, um, who loved jazz. But I said, the thing that you're missing is that they just didn't fall from the sky. I didn't have them before I decided to take the risk. I took the risk and built those relationships and then had them. And yeah. there's a big difference, you know, to, again, no jazz business for dummies to each their own. But I think you have to be willing the, the days of, oh, I'm really talented and I just want to focus on the music and I'm really good. And so money's just going to come. Uh, it doesn't work like that Totally in, in, in the everyday world. You know, there are some labels that still sign artists and pay them well. Um, there are some people who are extremely successful on social media and crowdfunding who make livings off Patreon and who do, and that's all beautiful, but generally, and even with crowdfunding stuff and even with Patreon, there's an investment by you the artist to get to that level and i think some people especially younger people i think they kind of forget that a little
0: bit absolutely yeah i mean even just for me for myself doing rhythm changes right i mean i am starting to build a small small subscriber base but the amount of time and effort and money that i've had to put in up front is not even close to being recouped by that but it can be over time but that's that's the way if you're doing that sort of thing that is the way it's done and any album that you make is a version of this model. There is an yep. upfront investment required. What mixture of time and effort that's going to be for you is ultimately up to you and there's infinite possibilities.
1: Yep. And you, you kind of touch on this a little bit and I'm, I'm not even using you as an example cause we're doing this show, but again, it's about setting your expectations for yourself. It's a slow build. I think the the initial reaction, like when I saw your stuff coming out, I'm like, "Wow, man, Will's really like battling a you know he's he's walking a, a very steep slope,"
0: <laughs> and I
1: I only said that not because I wanted to be discouraging, but because I'm like, "It's you, it's a steep slope," but you've obviously set your expectations realistically and understand that to do anything, especially in Vancouver, but to do anything that's like this takes time to build. I'm not criticizing young people, it's just the way the generation is with all of this like immediacy. Everybody thinks it should happen really quickly and it doesn't happen quickly. And you're going to fall down and you're going to make a mistake and you're going to lose some money and you, you know you're going to learn some things along the way, but if you again, if you set your expectations realistically and set out you know, to achieve those expectations, don't set them too high, but don't also don't set them too low. Um, then I think you, 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 there's a way to have success in this industry, whatever, whatever you do, whether it's putting out a, a, an album or a podcast or, um, whatever it happens to be, you know? So, the slow growth sometimes, and I deal with it with my radio show. You know, I mean, I, I do my radio show for fun and I'm sometimes disappointed that I only see 15 people on there. It's like, well, what is the point of this? You know, what am I doing this for? And it's like, well, because 30 people listen later and maybe next week you'll have 20 and then maybe in a couple weeks you have 50 and maybe not, but it's, it's fun and I feel like I'm kind of doing something to contribute to the scene and to help my own mental health because I enjoy doing it and it's a good time. So again, set your expectations when you, when you're doing a record, know what your expectations are. and They're allowed to shift. It doesn't mean they can't shift, but you need to set some expectations and some goals and then sit down and
0: budget it out, you know? Yeah. My other favorite thing that you said is an important consideration at the beginning is you said the best possible product. This is on the musicianship side to make sure that you're coming in well-practiced. And you said in the position to make the best possible artistic product. And I love that you said best possible because there's other ways you could say that. Like we make sure that you are going to be great, like that's another thing that could be said, but you didn't say that. And I think saying best possible is the best way to go. And like, so on my jazz album, on the only album I've made under my own name, you know, I recorded that in 2015. So I was a teenager when I recorded it. It is the best possible product that I could have made at that age. Mm -hmm. It's not the most amazing album ever, but it's special to me because it's the artifact I have of where I was at in that year, 2015, and with those people. And you know, my friends who recorded with me, they were also teenagers, and now they're doing amazing things, and they're going to go on to do other amazing things. So it's special that... I went out and cut this album that is really revealing about where I was. And so it means a lot to me to have it. So even though I did know, wow, I'm really still early in my journey, there was still an an artistic motivation there for me. And that that can be true for you too. And I hear this from some younger musicians too, where they're concerned about not being ready to record or something like that. And, you know, maybe you're not ready, but maybe the metric of whether or not you're ready is about whether or not you feel like you have something to capture at this time not about meeting a bar that is like a fixed standard of the quality of your playing but it's about how do you feel about this thing you're doing and is it worth capturing and how do you do the best possible treatment of that
1: no it's you said it perfectly i mean i still every time i do a record i'm like oh i'm not ready for this what does that mean like you know (laughs) my first record as a leader was done with my favorite rhythm section in the whole world and i listened back to that i'm like oh my god Uh it was an important thing for me to do you know and from that came another opportunity and when i look around in my house of cds i don't see any of those there they're all gone you know each one of my records is gone so it's like i have had to learn as an artist just to say i don't make those decisions like I think sometimes like it's, I don't want to say it's easier for me, but I'm not like, I'm not going to write a symphony. I'm not going to write a suite. I play straight ahead music, so I don't feel like, okay, I did this record and now I'm going to like, think really deeply about sculptures and how it, art affects my life and come up with this really hip, sophisticated concept for my next record. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to play standards. I'm, I'm, you know, I think we talked about a couple of weeks ago, like my most successful record might in fact be Just coolin' that just, just coolin'. came out. Like it's, and I don't want to say it was a throwaway. That's not it at all. We, I worked very hard on that record, but it's funny. I mean, it, and you said it perfectly. Like it can be a document of where you're at at that time, which is really important and not ready for who or for what. Like, exactly, you know, don't compare yourself to train and Charlie Parker, and just compare yourself to yourself. And and if you feel like you have something artistic to say, the only person's decision that that is is yours. It's nobody else's decision. And if your record doesn't sell or nobody likes it, then, you know, having said that, having said all of that, when I was coming up, making a CD was very expensive. Making a recording was a very, very, very big
0: deal. It was not to be taken lightly.
1: Not to be taken lightly. And now a a kid half my age can sit in his basement and make a higher quality record, you know, than going into studio in 20 minutes and have it out to the world and have 14 billion followers. And, you know, so times have just changed. So I, I do think that sometimes that there is a readiness aspect, thinking from a label perspective, if you come to me and say, I want to put this record out on my on your label, then that's my decision to make because it's my label. If you're doing it as an independent artist, the only person that needs to be ready is you. You
0: and your musicians. Yes, exactly. So that's the only, you know, that's it. So. Okay. What if you brought a couple microphones into a basement and you brought out phone or something and you did some footage and you just recorded a stereo mix of yourself and then you took it to a local jazz musician like a brad turner or chris gestrin or somebody you got it mixed you know or got it mastered i guess if you're just yep. making a simple two track like that's something right and that would cost yep. hardly anything and yeah. that, you talk about relationships like i think any Jazz musician, if you go up to them and you show that to them, even if it's pretty lo-fi, I bet you they're going to be pretty impressed on the, you know, the gumption that you had to just get, get up and try something, you know?
1: Well, the other thing too, and I I don't want to go off into a question that hasn't been asked, but you, you bring up a very good point. Yes, the technology has changed and it was different and there are some negatives and positives to that, but there is no excuse for having a bad sounding demo, whether it's for a gig or whether it's for a recording, there's no excuse anymore.
0: This is a question and, and that's
1: coming up. I, I mean, it, it, it's like, no, 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 no. There's no more, you, you can't say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, and again, I will, I always say this carefully. I understand that not everybody has resources and and that's fair, but microphones, phones, recording programs, if you want to spend a day four hours two hours doing some research and making a demo recording you can do it it's not hard yeah. and you can do it on the cheap and so there's just no excuse for stuff to sound bad anymore
0: so here's there just is a statement of that for a specific case i guess here it is okay. i'm a young student considering making a demo to send to venue bookers here in vancouver i'm wondering if I should spend some money making a high-quality video of my band. Do I need to do this, or can I record some rehearsal footage of my band on my phone and use that? So
1: just as musicians are very individual and very individualistic, so are bookers. One thing I'll tell you, and I think I can speak for every booker in the world, um, we don't have a lot of time, and we're getting bombarded with requests. So I don't want to take away if there's a bigger question down the road, I'll I'll stick to your question. Myself personally, I'm very concerned about the way still to this day about how I put myself out into the world. Now you have to understand I've reached a level, whatever you want to call that level, where I have a different relationship with bookers than somebody just getting out of college. So I usually don't have to go through the whole process. But when I do go through the process, I feel like it's a reflection of me when I send out something that looks good and sounds good. I feel like that booker, whether it's true or not, I don't know. They'll see that I care. And when people come to me with requests, that also means a lot. I look at what they send and how they send it. And to me, it establishes a level of care. And I mean, we'll probably go on about this at length, but you know, I think you and I have joked before when I get the, Hey bro, you know, I want to play Frankie's I'm like, I'm not your bro. You refer to me as bro. I don't even know who you are.
0: It's unbelievable. So to yeah. me
1: right away, that doesn't, I'm not offended that you call me bro. I've been called way worse, but it's just about, that's not how you address me professionally for what you're after it. It's like, it's kind of like a know your audience thing. Like I'm a booker, you're asking me, and yes, maybe you saw me at the club having a beer and being all casual and having a good time, but you don't address me that way. And I think it's important to, within reason, to present yourself the way you want to be thought of. And if you give me a crappy rehearsal video that doesn't sound very good, I'm not going to listen to it. I mean, why would I listen to it? I mean, we all like stuff that sounds good, but having said that, the other thing to even back up even further is again, we live in this world of immediacy and really what musicians do, it happens all the time. I probably have four of them sitting in my inbox. They want to send one email to 70 bookers. Yeah. And that doesn't work. So why don't you email me first and say, Hey, Corey or Dear Booker or whoever if you don't know me and say, "Hey I, I would like to make a submission. You don't have a submission process on your website. Um, you know, what would you like? I nice. have a form email that I would send back saying, Here's the way I like stuff. I don't particularly need to see a video. I only have two minutes. My personal opinion is it takes more time, but I think you need to again. What are you trying to do? Like, are where? What? What? What's your? Two, are you? If, if you're in Vancouver and you're trying to get a gig at Frankie's, then you should take the two minutes it's going to require and email Frankie's and say, "Hey, I'd like to make submission. How do you like stuff?" Yes, I think I, that's I, the takeaway. I would get right. That's the takeaway. I would get right back and say, "Hey, I don't need documents and MP3s. Like, just tell me who you are. You know, tell yeah. me who you are."
0: So, I think the the perspective that the question was asked from, I think matters a lot. And I think it is a pretty solvable thing. But I think the key problem is the thought that you need to make some generic piece of content that you end up sending out to a bunch of people. And I think that's not going to work as well as maybe some other things that you could do. And especially if you're asking from the perspective of a younger musician or a student in a local music scene, like what if rather than trying to figure out how do I make the perfect generic demo recording that I can send to generic venue you actually think about which venues in particular do I want to play which kinds of music get presented there do those match what I play maybe they don't and then maybe you don't have to write off playing at that venue forever but maybe you don't say okay maybe not this time I'm not going to start with that venue. Cuz of course it's easier if I wanted to play at Frankie's if I can talk about how I just played at Second Floor Gastown and the Jazz Fest and Tyrant Studios, right? Yeah. So, if you start with the venues that are more simpatico to what you play, like let's run with Tyrant Studios for an example because I was just there recently. If you go there on the Fridays or Saturdays late at night, you can see the kinds of groups that are playing there. Maybe your friends play there. Maybe you can ask your friends how they got their gigs there. Maybe you can find out what the booker there wants. And then you can take your time even and go back to your own band and be like, well, maybe we can record one of these tunes that really sounds like one that would do well at Tyrant Studios. And then you can write to the booker and you can tell him like, hey, my friends just played at Tyrant recently. So there's one kind of nice check mark. Yep. And then two, I have a band and... This one tune that we play feels like something that you might like, and you know that's two because then you're writing to a person, right? And then three, you can have produced that particular thing and then send it to them, and that that would have a very high likelihood of working.
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, that's taking it another level. Yeah, to pretty another extensive. level, which is which is okay. I, I don't know that you need to. Sp- here's we. I think finding middle ground from that. Like here's another thing. I'm a curator. That's what I do. That's why Frankie's pays me and I do what I do, you know, and, and Bonnie is doing second floor. And so she's a musician, Yeah. you know, as far as jazz in the city, I'm a curator. I want to know what you want to do. And you also need to understand and hopefully have trust that if you don't present me exactly what I'm looking for. And will I don't know what I'm looking for. I can't, I don't wake up in the morning and go, I'm looking to book this, you know, come to me with your concept. Now I will come back to you and say, okay, you got a quintet. That's great. You're new in town or you haven't played before. Frankie's only does guarantees. Happy to give you a quartet gig on a Thursday night. And if you do well, then we can look at doing a quintet. Yeah. The odd time I'll offer less money, but I really like to try to get away from doing that because it's fairly standard, you know, and I have some restrictions on the administrative side that aren't important here, but I think it's important that you pick what you want to do. I'm not, I mean, by all means, if you want to adjust it to the venue and this happens with me because I'm Corey, the straight ahead guy. So people will say, oh, I'm thinking of doing a tribute to Paul Desmond, even though that person doesn't play like, I mean. It's like, dude, you don't need to play like Paul Desmond to get a gig at Frankie's. Like, what do you want? (laughs) What do you want to do? Okay. And the conversation is going to be around, okay. And as much as I hate this, but it's just the way it is, like, okay, you're active on social media. That's good. Like, I wanna we need to get people in the club, especially after the pandemic. It's important that we have bums in the seats. So what can you do to help me? Here's what I can do to help you. So I like people to be specific to start. I don't like vagueness to start. I, I really, I really don't. Some people come to me because we already have a relationship and they'll say, Hey, like, you know, what, what, what do you think? Like, what do you think of this? And my response is like, man, you do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you're never going to play the club if I don't like it, but do do what you want to do. And the other thing is that, and I use Jesse Cahill always as my example Come down and say hi. Don't come yeah. down and look. For, don't come down and look for a gig. Come down and say hi. Email me. Hey Corey, are you gonna be at the club tonight? Uh, yeah, I'm gonna be there. Oh, I'm just. I'm gonna come down and check out some music. I'd like to just shake your hand and say hello. I can't tell you that the, how simple that is to do and what it does for me because you know as a booker sometimes I'm scared to go to Frankie's. Because it's just like, I can see the people like, oh, there's Corey. Like, yeah, I got to get my CD and I got to, I got to do this. Can we do a gig? It's like, I'm a, I'm working here. I'm not booking, just say hi to me and hang out. And there is a crop of young musicians in this city who really get it and who are being very respectful. I, I'm not asking you to walk around like, like you're walking on broken glass around me, I, tiptoe. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying I need to be revered, but just say hi. I want to have a connection with you personally. Just to say, hey, and Jesse did that brilliantly. Come down to the club, second sets were free at Frank at Cellar, just like they are at Frankie's. Just come down and say hello. And Jesse did that. And look where Jesse and I are now. I mean, we played hundreds and hundreds of gigs together. So, yeah, you got to get out and hang out. You know, it doesn't mean you have to be spending $80 on dinner and cover, but start saying hi to some people. And, you know, you've got guys like, Julie Rakowski and Arvin and Todd Stewart and, and And like the list goes on and on of all these people that are hanging out. It's like, okay, now, now we're getting somewhere. Like now we're starting to get Atlee, you know, Ilhan, like all of these younger generation that are starting to understand. So that can work. But I think like in terms of doing something specific, but I think just narrowing the focus a little bit, meeting in the middle is at least what I
0: want, Yeah, you know? So let's do it. Let's meet in the middle. If on one extreme there is I'm going to make a generic demo video and I'm going to use that for every booker I send it to even if it's not a good fit. That's an extreme on this side where that's not going to work super well. Then there's the extreme of it being too much work where you could target it right down to every venue you know in your local scene but that would be a lot of work and if you wanted to make those materials high quality that could come at a significant cost of both time and money, right? So Perhaps, in the middle, you clearly define what you think your band is. You look at the venues, you figure out which venues you could possibly potentially fit in. You make your best demo with the intention of, I know that when I make something like this, I'm making a statement of how I want to be seen and of how I feel about how I should be treated, and I want to come in and make a good impression— You do look at your local scene, you figure out what your bag might be, and then you cut a tune that really does fit into that bag and you do make it the best you can because you are making a statement about how you want to be treated.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think, you know, I I think that just because you submit something and I'm like, look, like this just isn't, it's just not jazz club music. That doesn't mean I'm not going to give you the gig or it doesn't mean I won't give you another gig any gig, whether it's Frankie's or Pat's, like we're talking about 125 or 150 bucks here. Like this is not Carnegie hall. Yeah. Know what you want to do. And it doesn't mean you can't not do that thing and do something else. Like it, it doesn't mean you can't be like, uh, I don't know, like Dave Sekula who can get up and play West Montgomery music and then get on stage with Steve Smith or any, a number of other people and play out. Mm-hmm. The key is sort of getting known on the scene as what you do, And again, I'm not going to banish you from playing any of my places because I'm pigeonholing you into thinking that you can only do one thing. But yes, like the 80s crowd is not playing at at Frankie's, but that's a pretty clear division. Like it's pretty obvious as to, and vice versa. So it's pretty obvious as to why.
0: And the wonderful thing now that it's so active is that there's like a dozen venues in the middle of that spectrum too.
1: Totally. So I still... I'm a believer that you, you, you do what you want. You, you play what you want to play and you represent yourself, how you want to represent yourself with less of a focus on, well, how do I get a gig with Corey? Or how do I get a gig here? Or how do I get a gig there? I think it's more about hanging out at those places, getting to know people, establishing relationships than it is. What yeah, your you're exact right. demo is going to be. That's where you, know? you
0: meet in the middle is where you stop. It's where your focus shifts away from, oh, how do I make this booker happy? Which, you know, is a thought that can cross your mind and can give you some useful information. But if you prioritize that too much, you're maybe missing something that's more important, which is, well, what am I bringing to the table at this venue for this booker? Focus on how you can bring your best stuff to the table rather than what might make this person happy. Yeah. Nice. So one more question in this kind of bucket of album releasing and the process, which is a little bit more of a left field, maybe more of a lighter one, or it's a different story that you can recount. Okay. How did you get a distribution deal in Japan for Seller Music? Sure. Yeah, uh,
1: I can tell you about that. Um, So first of all, you know, I started the label in 2000, and, you know, God, I can't even remember... So there was a label in town that used to be owned by Brad Turner, Chris Terry, and Sean Pierce called Maximum Jazz. Okay. And things happened, they sold. So that actually the first record that, well, we're not on video, so I can't. I, it doesn't matter to show you, but that we released a compilation after our first year called Maximum Jazz Presents Live at the Cellar. And that was a distribution deal that I had through Maximum. And then our next records that came out were distributed by Maximum. Through universal.
0: So this is before seller live records.
1: No, this was, so the live at the seller came out and that was on maximum jazz. It was a S it was branded seller live, but it was more maximum jazz. And then the first seller live record was Ross Taggart. Yeah. And I was trying to get maximum jazz to take it on as an imprint label, which at that point they weren't interested in. Um, so they distributed for us. I can't remember how long that went on for, not very long. Then we were distributed by Festival Distribution, which was Jack Schuler, And then we were distributed, I think, then we went to Allegro. But I, you know, I can't even remember. There might have been somebody before that. But Festival, we were with Festival for a long time, which was local. But while this was going on, I got reached out to by a company called Superstop. Um, they reached out to me. And uh, we had done a Charles McPherson record. We'd done... I think the Lonnie Smith record at that point. And this was m- life-changing because, you know, and it's still like this today, Japan is one of the few territories that actually purchases records. So maybe a lot of people don't know this. There's no such thing as like distribution is all consignment, almost a hundred percent consignment, meaning that if they don't sell them, they just send you, send it back and, you know, they, they, credit, you're a debit, you're Yeah,
0: account. you only make money when the retailer does actually end up selling the albums.
1: Yeah, Japan yeah. is not like that. Now, they were buying, now in hindsight, looking back, and that kind of saved, I don't want to say it saved the label, that's not true, but it definitely gave the label a big bump. And so I had this deal with them that went on for several years. And eventually they got out of the deal and we did get a big return. It wasn't a huge return, but we had sold so many units over there. It didn't matter. It was great. Uh, All, there's a whole bunch of stuff changing. I went with Allegro. I didn't have distribution in Japan for a while. And then I hooked up with uh, a company called Gats Productions, uh, which is another, he, again, he reached out to me. Um, And so I started dealing with him and then... I grouped Gats Productions in with my current worldwide distributor which is MVD. They're out of Pottstown, Pennsylvania. So, the short answer to your question how I got the deal was they reached out to me. Things have changed in, even in Japan. Um, so it's not quite as uh, you know, it's not quite as easy as it once was, but they love music, they love jazz and they still buy records. So, that's how I got it. It was just kind of fluke. Um, I also work with a company called King and they are more on the archival side. Um, they released a couple of records on Seller Music. We got a exclusion, a contractual exclusion for a couple of our records. Cause we thought that King would handle them better, uh, which they did. You know, most of our sales are North American. The archival stuff, you know, has expanded the reach a lot. Um, MVD is more of a. U S North American focused distribution company. They'd probably hate me if they heard me say that, but it's true. The numbers speak for themselves. Um, you know, and, and, and with international distribution, you're dealing with shipping and, you know, having to chase people for money and all that kind of stuff. So we focus primarily on, on North America streaming website, artist sales, you know.
0: And back in that period, you know, you talk about music distributors, like right now, what is what do you think of when you think of a music distributor? Well, maybe you think of DistroKid or whatever, where you upload your digital files and then it sends it to all the streaming platforms. Well, no, this was actually, the business of distribution was important. It was all important for you because it was literally about getting CDs into physical stores. So this was a crucial part of the puzzle and like getting the distribution companies that you worked with over the years was, was a really big deal.
1: Yep. And physical still is a big part of our business. I mean, this whole idea that physical is dead and the CD is dead is just simply not true. Of course it's changed and it's lessened, but you know, we really noticed an uptick, especially at the start of COVID, you know, our digital, our website traffic and our, our, our physical sales increased significantly. I don't think it's ever going to return to, you know, the, the years past, but it's still very viable and very vital. Um, and of course the, the resurgence of vinyl has also, um, contributed greatly to the, the physical media phenomenon, if you will. This whole thing that, oh, vinyl's coming back and the young kids are leading the resurgence, like that's not going to affect you or me you know, but there is a, what it does affect is there is an interest in physical media that has come back. And so physical still remains an important piece. And, and when we're talking at the beginning of the the podcast about expectations and knowing your audience, this is something that you have to think about. Am I going to press CDs and what are CDs needed for? Who is my audience?
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's lots there. I checked up on this a little bit too. And I did find a Bloomberg article that was paywalled, but I could read in the kind of Google search result description that even as of 2020, CDs made up over 70% of the Japanese recorded music market, which is pretty impressive.
1: It is pretty impressive. There's a really neat, while we're uh, doing this, I'll see if I can find it, but there's a really, I mean, I think you would like it, documentary on Tower Records Oh yeah. I grew up driving across the border, uh, going to oh. Tower Records in Seattle. The name of the documentary is All Things Must Pass and it's about an hour and a half and it's phenomenal. Wow. I've okay. watched, I've watched it like three times and it talks about physical media and Tower Records. I mean, basically, I don't know if they technically sold, but I, I'm pretty sure like the, the guy sold Tower Records to Japan. So that's the only place that Tower still exists but the power of physical media was so, so cool. Uh, uh just the power of, of just everything that it did, like tower records single-handedly revamped this one desolate area of downtown Manhattan with a store. Uh, it's a phenomenal watch. It's, as I said, it's called all things must pass. It's a really, really cool doc, but you know, physical, physical is still important. And I think it, it will remain important as long as we're a niche music you know, as some of the older generation uh, moves on, we'll see what happens. But, um, you know, for now, it's still, it's still important.
0: Nice. So that was a really cool episode because you did bring it back around. And I think it was a really nice introduction to a lot of themes that will continue to come up as we keep diving into some of these questions. We focused a lot on album production and even just album concept and mm-hmm what am I doing? Why am I doing it? How am I thinking about what I'm bringing to the table in terms of making a recording? I'm sure we'll be doing that in terms of how to get gigs very soon yeah. and on a bunch of other different subjects. But that's certainly a lot to go on for today. And I will make my one pager that kind of sums up what we talked about in terms of the ins and outs of releasing an album to go along with this. But to close, cool. I'd love to ask you about two upcoming seller albums They're coming out on Friday, July 15th, soon Mm -hmm. after we drop this episode. The first one that's coming out on that day is Sheila Jordan, Live at Mesro, which is really Mm -hmm. cool. I'm excited to take a listen to that. And then Brian Charette, Jackpot, featuring Brian Charette on the organ. And you're playing on that album with Ed Cherry on guitar and the great Bill Stewart on drums. I know my mm-hmm. friend Bobby Weens, who has made an album on Cellar, is a big Bill Stewart fan and has sung his praises to me many times over the years. I don't think I've ever seen him live, although he did come to the Jazz Fest one recent year, I'm thinking of. I don't know if I ever made that happen. You've brought him probably to Cellar and Frankie's, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. He was there with Lonnie Smith. Okay, um, yeah. Going back. He was there with Lonnie Smith. And then I think that might be the only time he was at the cellar. Okay. Unless maybe Larry Golding. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was the seller too. That was, was okay. So I was wondering if that was
0: Frankie's who's the seller, but I know I didn't make it to that, but I know he came for
1: that. Yeah, He'd been there and then he's been to Frankie's two or three different times.
0: Yeah. When I was checking out those two upcoming releases, I looked at what Brian Charette wrote in his own little blurb on his blog Mm -hmm. about the album. And he said that you've worked with bill stewart before now is he talking about you bringing him out to cellar or what's your history with collaborating with bill stewart yeah i mean i've never played with bill that was
1: my that was my that was my maiden voyage if you will Um, but i worked with bill and have a bit of a relationship with bill i helped him with some tax stuff uh, when he was playing out here one time but um brian uh, first of all i love brian he's a dear friend and he wanted to do this record and you know, he's like, Oh, I think you should play on it. I'm like, nah, dude, I don't need to play on your record, man. You got access to anybody you want. He's like, No, no, I want you to I want you to play on us. So I was like, okay, well, I'm flattered. And we were talking about drummers. I'm like, man, what about Bill Stewart? And he's like, oh, that'd be great. I'm like, well, you gotta you have to know Bill. Like he's like, no, I've never met him. I'm like, really? I said, well, I know him. I'll reach out to him. So I reached out to Bill, and Bill was very cool. And I think it was um I mean I I've been very lucky on that same trip I played with Billy Drummond. You know, speaking of powerhouse drummers, but there's something about Bill there's an intensity to his music and to his personality, and it's not in a bad way, but he's a very serious guy. And um, it was a really humbling and exciting experience for me to get to play with Bill. You know, then you have Ed Cherry, who's like got a long history too, and and Brian just wrote some good tunes, and it was just kind of a, it was a fun record to make. I'm proud of it, and I'm really happy for Brian. And I just, I think it's a really nice, this is a really nice document. It's not a, you know, it's not a life-changing or, or, or it's not, um, remember that quote I got the other day? Going uh,
0: midstream in the mainstream. Paddling <laughs>
1: midstream in the mainstream. Um, but they're great, to, you know, they're great tunes and, um, I, I think Brian and Bill sound fabulous together. So I'm excited about that one. The Sheila Jordan one is exciting for a, a couple of different reasons. First of all, it's Sheila Jordan, was she like 94, yeah. And still doing her thing. It's phenomenal. But, um, this is part of a bigger project, uh, that I'm very grateful to Spike Wilner, who is the owner operator of Mesro and Smalls Live. So if you read the liner notes, uh, I- I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially what happened is over the pandemic, um, Spike raised a lot of money that he didn't end up needing to run the clubs. And so he felt sort of ethically irresponsible to use that money to run his clubs. Um, and so what he did is he started the Smalls Live Foundation Living Masters Series where he selected, I think right now we have five or six living masters and gave them significant grant money to record a record. Wow. And then turns around and pays all of the production for those records. But Spike doesn't want to be in the record business. He doesn't want to deal with any of that. So he called me and said, look, I'm just going to give you the masters and I'm going to give you the money to put the records out. And, you know, if you do well and if you generate some revenue from it, um, you know, you can make a donation back to the foundation at some point. So the first one was supposed to be a Tyler Mitchell Marshall Allen release and some things happened. We had to delay it. So that's coming out in January. So the first one technically is Sheila. Uh, we're going to follow that up with Kirk Lightsey great pianist, he's done all kinds of great stuff. We've got one coming from George Coleman, We've got one coming from Dave Liebman. We've got one coming from Jesse Davis that I produced. And then we've got this Tyler Mitchell and then we've got the Sheila Jordan. So it's a really nice collaboration. It's extremely generous of Spike to do what he's done. And, and the plan is to, you know, put that money back into, I mean, providing we generate some revenue to put that money back into you know recordings of sort that that sort of celebrate this cool legacy so it's pretty neat that uh the sheila one's coming out because she's a you know she's a, a powerhouse without question it's very cool
0: exciting stuff it's great to hear about well Corey, thank you for episode one of jazz office hours we laid out a lot of good material so i am excited just here at the end of our recording session to get into editing and to get this out to people at the beginning of this month of july 2022 excellent and uh have a great rest of your week my friend
1: you as well let me know if you need anything nice okay man